Hi, welcome to Cinemad. I'm sitting here with Sam Green. Online, we have an older interview with you that's like more background, talks about how you got started and stuff. And yeah. I think we went up to, that was a point when Weather Underground came out, and you were an Academy Award-nominated director. Registered trademark. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we should talk about what's, what's happening since then and also... Just, I was thinking about that because we ran a photo that's of you on the red carpet, but of course it's of Nicole Kidman, and right. you're really far in the background. Her cock-blocking me. Right. <laughs> and um, you're interesting because you straddle these worlds where you're making a documentary, which has become a popular format besides just PBS. I mean, actually, you can play a documentary in theaters. People will go see it. Yeah. But you definitely have a, a truly independent vibe, an underground vibe, and a stylistically underground vibe. But... Uh, so when you got nominated for the Academy Award, I mean, did that? How did that sort of affect your reality of being like a real person, just sort of working on their own? Uh, it was a little weird because I had, I'd made this movie, The Rainbow Man, and was just like definitely coming out of an underground sensibility. And The Weather Underground was that too, even though it had to be a little more legit. I mean, I licensed stuff, and but I wasn't like. I'd never had an office or, you know, hiring people. It was all done in, like, a very scrappy way. And, and so it was definitely weird to have a kind of mainstream level of success with that and, you know, kind of legitimacy. But yeah. that was good, too. I, w I wasn't arguing with it. It definitely has helped with things. And that's something that, like, your grandparents recognize. You know, like, oh, nominated for Academy Award? Like, you must be okay. So... It's okay, and it's definitely given me more freedom to be, you know, not care as much about that stuff. Right. And is it like, does it make it easier to raise money, basically? Kind of, but it's always, um, I think it's always depends on the project. You know, if you were making something about, after Weather Underground, I joked, like, because the minute you do a movie, the first question at the first q and I'm, I was surprised it wasn't that last night. Is what's your next movie? You know, and so it's like, ah, oh, I don't have a next movie. But with Weather Underground, at that point when people were asking, I was like, I had this joke that I was going to do a movie about pets and the Holocaust, the last Holocaust movie, you know, there there is. But you know, and I was joking like I could raise so much money for pets and the Holocaust. Uh, but you know, if you do like a weird experimental thing about Utopia, like who's going to give you money for that? That's a lot more challenging. So. I think rather than like, yeah, you get this, you know, you're nominated for Academy Award and like it's easy to raise money, it still always depends on the project. Although yeah. people return your email more if you say like, is that drop the Academy Award. Did you change it to Academy Award nominated Sam Green at Gmail or something? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you would have had to put the TM and the C in there too. So. Right. I did so have this like totally weird, like... I don't I don't do that gratuitously, but occasionally use it just to try to like in a strategic way. And right. this is like a total digression. You can edit this out if you want. But mm -mm. I, I um no was at Kaiser getting like a totally gross medical treatment done uh -huh. that I have to have semi regularly. And um, at Kaiser, like you are just a fucking number. Uh, and the trick there, I've realized over time, is to try to have them see you as an individual person. So I met with the doctor I had, and I was like, hey, I make movies. And here's a DVD. I brought you a DVD. And I gave him this DVD, and he was like, oh, my God, this is great. So every time I go in... 
for this gross treatment, and I'm about to be anesthetized now. I'm like on the table in one of those gnarly gowns. This doctor will come in and say to all the nurses around, hey, this guy was nominated for an Oscar. You know, this is like years later, and I'm like, oh, fuck. Like, I don't want to talk about this now. So that backfired. No, that's like, that's, that sounds, that's pretty powerful. Pretty powerful stuff. Right. Just don't make, you can't make a, a documentary about um, doctors probably then. Right, right, right. In there. So did, uh, you'd been doing Utopia stuff, or you at least have been talking about it. For a long time. And yeah. Is there something, I mean, is it as simple as when you're growing up, you saw something that sort of enticed you about Utopia? Oh, what is it about Utopia? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean. It's your thing. The Utopia guy. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I do see themes that have run through my work from the Rainbow Man to Weather Underground to Esperanto. I mean, they're all about a kind of idealism and yearning for something or struggling for something that doesn't quite work out. But, you know, so I, I guess those are ideas or themes that resonate with me. And utopia, that whole thing, I mean, utopia in a way, the word for me just is kind of shorthand for hope and imagining a future with creativity. So I like that stuff. So that's where that's kind of where that comes from. And just always you like sort of kept track of the stories and the different kind of Things you could have done shorts about. Yeah. I mean, I just, like, have pet interests, stuff that I like. And the Utopia Project was a way to combine a couple of those Mm -hmm. into one piece and try to make them make sense. Because they're, to me, all about certain ideas and history, different parts of of one piece. So I hope that it would work like that. Right. And then when did you come upon the live documentary? The live documentary thing? Yeah. Well, I had originally started to make Utopian Four Movements as a normal movie. Mm -hmm. It was, um, I was going to, I was really inspired by Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, this movie with profile of four people, and it intercuts between them, and it never says why or what it's about. There's no sort of, you know, macro commentary or anything and i liked that that was a cool form i thought and as an audience member i wondered what the connections were and i tried to make the connections and i liked that kind of active engaging with the movie so i wanted to do something similar where it was these four different stories that were all in my mind uh, in one way or another about utopia uh but not really clear what the connections were but you could come up with it yourself and I put it all together I shot all these pieces I put it together and showed some people and everybody said like this makes no sense at all I don't I don't get it in the least and I was completely crushed by that and I did didn't, it like the individual parts and yeah but they sense. were just like what does utopia have to do with the world's largest shopping mall and and then like forensic anthropology like this doesn't make any sense and uh, so I was just stuck for a while. And Craig asked me to give a talk about the project mm-hmm. at Craig ATA. Baldwin. Yeah, Craig Baldwin at Other Cinema. Just, just talk and show some clips. And so I, I thought, wow, that'll be kind of cool. And as I was putting together a PowerPoint presentation, I got in touch with Dave Surf, who made music for the Weather Underground. And I said, hey, Dave, I'm going to do a PowerPoint presentation. Will you... Just play some music along, be a DJ. 
And so I did this thing where I talked about the project and then I showed clips and Dave did music and it was great. It worked great. Like people got it and it was a fun event. And so that was cool. I was like, wow, that, that was kind of cool. And then Matt McCormick at PDX said, hey, will you come do that PowerPoint presentation and talk about the project? And I was like, okay, but I'm going to make it a little more like self-standing rather than say, in this film, I'm going to do this. I kind of cut a lot of that out. So it was more like, here's the film. But I was talking and showing stuff and Dave did music again. And that worked really good too. I was like, wow, this... This live thing, there's something to it. And right around that time, I had a couple experiences. I saw <clears throat> Brand Upon the Brain, the live version yeah. uh, by Guy Madden. And that was amazing. It was so good with Isabella Rossellini narrating and live Foley. And I was just like, wow. Yeah, all in the room. Yeah, there was something magic about being there. And then another thing I saw was, and this will sound funny, but there was a R. Kelly sing-along. <laughs> at this right. place mezzanine here in San Francisco, a bar, a club. And what it was was this, I don't know, this guy, Alamo Drafthouse guy, I think, mm-hmm. travels That's around really yeah. showing clips, R. Kelly videos, and mm-hmm. talking in between them and showing interview clips. Right. And I realized <clears throat> all this stuff you could see online, every piece of that was online. Right. It was fantastic live. People were drinking. People were singing along. We had such a fantastic time. It was one of the best cinematic experiences I've ever had. And I realized that's that's the magic of liveness, being it with other people and having this communal experience. So that that really got me interested in one other thing, to go on and on and on. Uh This guy (laughs) named David Dorfman got in touch with me. I didn't know this at the time, but he's a pretty well-known choreographer. And he said he wanted to make a dance piece about the Weather Underground. Wow. I was like, good luck, man, because <laughs> I had struggled so hard with getting things right, right. and communicating facts. So he w- it would be almost like a ballet about the <clears throat> Modern story? Dance. Modern dance. Yeah, yeah, about the Weather Underground. So yeah. I was really right. skeptical. But he worked on it, and uh-huh. it was at Yerba Buena here. It toured all over, and I went, and it was fantastic. It was so good. Oh, cool. It was no facts and no mm-hmm. <clears throat> nothing didactic. It was all just light and movement and shadow and mood. And that really made me realize that the form shapes audiences' expectations a lot. So if you go to a documentary, if something's not totally clear, you're like, that was confusing. But if you go to a modern dance piece, you very rarely say, or most people don't say, like, that was confusing. You accept that that form has a lot of ambiguity to it and and sort of abstractness. So I sort of thought with this piece I could get away with a lot more, that if I did something live that was sort of like more of a performance, audiences' expectations, people would be more open to a kind of poetic logic as opposed to Mm -hmm. the, the linear didactic logic that documentary says you should expect. Right. So that's where that came from. And then we submitted it to Sundance. I mean, we went and did it for all the programmers, which was fucking excruciating. <laughs> oh, you did like a live submission? Yeah. <laughs> and it was like it's a, a theater with like five programmers in it. And 
I'll never forget, like, they're watching, like, 20 things a day. So half of them were asleep. You know, and, like, it's like... Oh, they weren't all the way asleep. It was like doing a comedy routine for five people. You know, it was totally painful. But, so then when we got in, it was like, oh, shit, we need a band. Oh, you didn't have the band. It was still just PowerPoint. Me and Dave Surf, yeah. And so he was just kind of doing a laptop thing. So Mm -hmm. I had talked to Todd Griffin, who... Scores movies and does stuff for Jem Cohen live stuff and is a good fellow and he he was like yeah we'll do it so we sent quick times back and forth mm-hmm. we're in San Francisco he was in Brooklyn and they just made music and then we went like a week early to Sundance and just sat and worked on it for a while so that's where it kind of came how it came together. And we'd been doing it for two and a half years. We just stopped like a few weeks ago, the mm-hmm. last show. And and it's funny because you before your films were not narration heavy. Yeah. Well, that was the hard thing. Like I never, I was, I am a shy filmmaker, and many documentary filmmakers use other people to say things for them. I mean, I'll cop to that. Mm-hmm. And so it took a lot of psyching myself up and like cringe you know the movie i made for you was a test mm-hmm. the lunch films movie was a first test to see like can i stand the sound of my own voice <laughs> right and it, i cringe like anybody else at the sound of my own voice but it was okay i wasn't gonna you know puke or anything <laughs> how many takes do you think you did for for Just clear glasses for starting out, yeah clear glasses. oh a lot yeah. I'd love to hear the – I recorded that with Christian Bruno, and he was like, say this differently, you know, and be like, I can't. <laughs> but then you just sort of – you just worked it out. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's okay. Right. <laughs> because now you're the live documentary dude, so <laughs> you're going to have to – Yeah, I mean, if people are describing – like, everybody's pretty charmed by it, and I think, it, like, you're right. Like, I don't know if nobody – when people talk about after after last night's Buckminster Fuller and after Utopia, at least at Sundance, nobody were, was like, yeah, all the f- I love the film stuff he shot. I love this and that. I love the editing. Nobody talks about the little technique stuff. Yeah. Like, definitely, you don't overwhelm the performance, but people are just like, oh, I like how Sam talks when this thing is happening. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else is like, oh, yeah, I liked when they played. Like People forget the band's there, and then they'll say, oh, but when... The car scene was yeah. happening, and they get sort of Raymond Scott like they're like, oh, I like that. Yeah. So it's a crazy balance. Well, it's super interesting because with a film, the whole idea with with cinema is that people are lost. The goal is that people are lost in the magic of cinema. You're mm-hmm. absorbed on the screen. You know, your attention is what's happening in the screen. And if people are looking around the theater like you've lost them. And the interesting thing with this is that you go back and forth, that there are parts of a live movie that, you know, you want people in the screen and then parts of it where they are aware that we're in a room. And it's kind of interesting to try to play with that. It's another dimension of of sort of like canvas to work on. Mm-hmm. And then do you like have to... It, were these two projects last night was love songs of our Buckminster Fuller yeah are these at least with these two do you have to find sort of uh, like what happens if you don't connect with the musicians you really want to work with 
Oh. <laughs> you mean I mean, if it doesn't work out? I mean, is it just going to be endless practice and endless that type of a writing? A sort of almost like, or do you just trust people and what they're going to do is what? No, hell want? no. I mean, we worked a lot. <laughs> yeah. With Utopia, we worked a lot with Todd and a lot of back and forth, and we continued to work on it and change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with this, the Buckminster Fuller one with Yola Tango last night, we worked a lot too. I went to their practice space. First, I just sent them a, a like a rough sketch of the piece. What mm-hmm. I did actually is I, I came up with nine sections that was just going to be music. Mm-hmm. And I gave them that, nine different sections with no talk. And then I wrote talk around it. Because mm. with this one, I wanted to make it more... The, the Utopia movie had come out of a film. It had started as a film. So it was always constrained by that. And with a film, you can't have like a three-minute music break. That's not the form of a documentary. So I was always like wanting to open it up more, but it didn't quite work. And so with this one, I wanted to start from a different place and be able to have it be more open, especially because the band, like many people were there to see the band, so they have to be more prominent. Mm-hmm. So um, I did that, you know, nine sections where they would play, mm-hmm. and then I wrote voiceover around it, and we went back and forth a lot. You know, I mean, musicians don't always see how everything's got to work in a bigger picture way, and Mm-hmm. You know, okay, we can sort of rock out here, but for the overall structure of the piece, you need to rock out there. You know, there's that kind of stuff. So, and they can't possibly be used to sitting on stage and not playing, right? For, <laughs> right. For minutes, <laughs> right? <laughs> but then, so so with Utopia, did you find that? Um, I mean, crowds just opened up to it in a better way. Like audiences were more receptive. Obviously, As a live just, documentary? Yeah, because you said the film part didn't work and the live was enough to make people well, connect see, with the subject. Well, see, one thing I didn't mention is that when I, when I showed it, there was no voiceover to people. Mm, okay. As a regular film, I just had the four stories intercut. Mm-hmm. And people said it didn't make sense. And I realized there had to be some explanation. And so I didn't know what to do. And that doing a PowerPoint presentation solved that for me because I just talked. And it was a lot easier to say, like, I'm going to do a PowerPoint presentation than, like, I'm going to write some pompous voiceover, you know? Mm-hmm. So that solved it by being able to talk and explain things a little. Like, here's how this connects to this. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of got used to voiceover. Now I really – I had always had that documentary thing where it's like, voiceover, man. That's the man telling you what to think, you know, and just there was that sort of 80s, 90s turn away from voiceover where voiceover was the lamest thing in the world. And I've actually come full circle now where I have great respect for voiceover when it's done well. Mm -hmm. Most people don't do it because most people can't write well. But like Adam Curtis Mm -hmm. is fucking great. That guy's a phenomenal writer and... Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm a little bored with documentaries that show both sides. You know, it's like, come on, just say something. The world is so, we're, you know, things are so important these days in the world. Like, we don't want wishy-washy, we don't have time for wishy-washy show both sides. I mean, I'm being a little extreme here in what I'm saying, but still, like, just fucking say something. And if you can't articulate something, there's a lot of other movies out there. So... I I have a lot of respect for voiceover now when it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it takes like nobody thinks about that. It's writing, 
people think it's like, oh, it's talking, it's timing, oh, but it's all writing. <clears throat> writing for talking is hard, too. Yeah. Really hard. Writing for talking. Writing for talking. <laughs> to a class. <laughs> writing for talking. <laughs> I when, when we were working on Utopia, I got... Um, mm-hmm. I worked with this theater director a little, and he helped me out a ton in terms of writing for talking. What kind of stuff would he tell you? Well, just cutting way, way down. Like, Mm. he, he, an example, I had written a a line that said, from Utopia, that said, at many points in history, people had high hopes and a great imagination for the future. And he cut the first part of it and said, you don't need that. Just say it. And I kind of was like, what? So I said it, or I said, you do it. And he said, people had high hopes and a great imagination for the future. That says it. You don't need to say at many points in history, you know. And so that kind of like making things as finely, you know, like honed as you possibly can makes for good writing for talking, which I didn't know. Right. And then did... Did he give you any stage direction, like how to stand up? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was like, (laughs) I'm not an actor. I'm not a performer, you know, any of that. And it was totally embarrassing to do, like, those insane actors warm-up exercises. Like, I don't even want to describe it, but, you know. But it helps you. It helps. It helps. But I was mortified. I didn't want anybody to see me doing it, you know. And then did you find any, did you learn any tricks or you just, you didn't get, tricks. it seems like you, like, could you guys stay in there for a long time? Yeah. I don't know. It's just like getting more comfortable with it and stuff like that. And we'll talk more about Fuller, but, uh, but in connection to Utopia, you just put out Esperanto as a kind of its own thing. Yeah. And was that, well, we'll talk about the making of it. Like you, (laughs) when was the first time you heard Esperanto? I think I knew I've known about Esperanto for a long time. It's just one of those things that was like funny. I liked the idea yeah. of it, but I always thought it was <clears throat> something that was made in the fifties or like some sci-fi type of thing. Right. Then a couple of years ago, I read this article that explained that it was from the eighteen eighties, and it was this idealistic Polish guy who invented it, and that made me see it a lot different. Instead of just this weirdo like the hula hoop, I saw it as like a real reflection of 20th century modernism and 20th century belief and progress and a, mm-hmm. a flowering and a waning of that kind of thinking about the world, which I liked. Yeah. And then was it, was it a hard to find the people? Well, so I went to, you know, you yeah. can go online, they're online, but I, yeah. I read that there, were, there are these World Esperanto Congresses every year in a different city. So I went to one and was amazed there were thousands of people from all over the world. And they're all like they're all nice and they're all slightly eccentric from whatever country. Right. <coughs> and they but that's every year now. Yeah. It's it still not, happens. Yeah, it's been happening since nineteen oh five, yeah. Wow. What was how did you find there going especially going in there with the idea of utopia? Yeah. How did you sort of did you connect with them? Kind of. I mean, many of them don't... Many of them are like, this is not utopian. We just like to talk to people. You know, or stuff yeah. like that. And I respect that. I'm not arguing with them. But I do think the heart of the project is this utopian vision. The guy who came up with it was a utopian and had this idea that 
it could create peace. And so it's woven into the whole thing, the sensibility. And so, you know, it's an idealistic project. And now that you put it out, was, yeah. is that because the form, not like you're going to, like you can only do live docs. Yeah. You just seem to be good at it these two times. Uh-huh. So <laughs> the idea of um, is how important is it for something to last? Like, you know, because recording the live stage, yeah, fine, could work. But it's really even more like if you have an orchestra playing with a silent movie, even that's not. You still yeah. just want to watch the movie. Right, right. So how, how concerned are you now with making something that lasts past the live thing? Well, it's funny because it's not some sort of principle really about ephemerality or the ability to document something. It's more just each project has its own logic. So with Utopia, I actually tried to document that. And it never was the same as the live thing. It's just like if you see see a video of a dance piece, it's always kind of just, it's not as good. And you're missing something. So I just realized with that, it's better to exist in the moment. That it's a magic thing that happens. And if you catch it cool, it's never the same twice. And now it's done. If you saw it, great. If you didn't, didn't. But with the Esperanto movie, I mean, there are a lot of Esperanto speakers all over the world. Mm-hmm. And they probably want to see this movie, and they're not going to go to some live show. So I made it, and I'm downloading it. You know, this is a cool experiment. I like this. I have a site where I'm selling downloads of the movie. So it's totally the opposite of Utopia, where it's this ephemeral thing. You know, if, you, yeah. if you're not there, you can't see it. This is like anybody in the world can download it in 19 different languages and it's a good way to distribute it. So I definitely believe in each project has its own sort of optimal form. The Buckminster Fuller thing I like as a live piece because he was a lot about performance and, you know, there's something kind of live and interesting about him. But the, the SF MoMA also <coughs> approached you to do it. That's how yeah. it started, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they're they doing... for a live performance? Yeah. They're doing a show about Fuller, and they commissioned me as part of that to make this live piece. Mm-hmm. <coughs> how hands-on, or it was pretty straightforward? Yeah, I mean, they didn't... They, they gave me money to do it, but they didn't... You know, they weren't involved at all and now i can do it elsewhere it's sort of it's my piece so oh that's cool yeah and what did you know about him before there's some documentaries there's, on there's him. a documentary from the 90s early 90s mm-hmm. about him that's only on vhs that's pretty good it's a little dated but it's pretty good mm-hmm. and i just kind of knew he was the dome guy and a kind of eccentric i knew he'd sort of been a countercultural figure even though he was like an old man by then but it was a great, you know, I love research and I like looking into things. So that was really fun to learn more about him. And I've become much more, he's a great muse. I've become much more inspired mm-hmm. by him and interested by him. Did you know like that entire gigantic archive? No, I had no idea. He has yeah. all of his papers, uh, the, the biggest collection of any single person's papers are at Stanford University. And so... I've been through other people's papers, and I love it. I looked through Emil D'Antonio's papers once wow. in Wisconsin, and that was awesome. I stayed in a hotel. This is like a 
uh, somebody doing a crack binge or something, except it was archival stuff. I stayed in a hotel and drove every day to the university and went through his papers. And I'd go back to the hotel. And it was awesome. I love snooping in that way, you know? And so Fuller's is like the nirvana of somebody who's into archives. It's really good. So Was he aware of it? Of a creating an archive when he was alive, then that was his whole project. Wow. He was making an archive for his whole life in a very intentional way. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's chronological. Every day, yeah. he would save a bunch of stuff. So it's organized in a chronological fashion, which is kind of weird, but it's actually really helpful too. Mm. It's not like by subject. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's right. You say in your piece, you actually can tell what he was doing on any day. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. You can see like what his dry cleaning bill was on this day. <laughs> but it's cool. That's like a lot of that stuff is the raw material of history that yeah. get, nobody saves, like telegrams and stuff like that. Right. I mean, it's because always, it's always more interesting if you get a receipt from someplace in another language. Uh-huh. You suddenly are like, whoa, this is a different thing yeah. that I never pay attention right, to. Right, right. But like Thai writing is incredible, <laughs> you know. But what. Um, when did he start it then? How old was he? He started it in his mid-twenties. Wow. He started it in the 1920s and went all the way to the 80s till the day he died. So there's no way you got... Oh, Jesus, what did you get through? Nothing. Just yeah. a tiny... <laughs> nobody has... Yeah. It's like one of these things nobody has. There's some guy who's doing this thing. I think he was one of the... I'll get this wrong, but like one of the Microsoft founders or something. Mm-hmm. He's doing this project called Life Bits, maybe, where it's mm-hmm. like documenting every part of your life just complete documentation and in a way mm-hmm. Fuller was just that like you know 70 years ago or something right. Stanley Kubrick had all those boxes oh my god did you ever see a movie about his archive that was yeah. great I think it's still it was online if it's not <laughs> called Stanley Kubrick's boxes yeah I love that part remember that part where his assistant talks about he had to photograph an entire street yeah Piccadilly Square <laughs> Yeah, and, and he made and him photograph, like get on a ladder. Do the whole street, and then he just didn't want to actually drive down the street. Yeah, himself. this wasn't like across the ocean. This was the same city. Yeah, I love that. That was such a great movie. It's such like you wonder like what lengths people would go to if they could. But the archive was fascinating because yeah. it was a incredibly rich window onto who he was. You learn more about him through the archive than mm-hmm. probably a documentary about him proper. So how do you even, what, what was your game plan? With Fuller? Yeah. I am embarrassed that I, about how little I've covered. I mean, you would it's really hard, have yeah. to go, you'd have to take three months and go every day to have any sense of it. And I right. haven't had that kind of time, but right. I hope to. <laughs> so did you like, I mean, were you just sort of looking at inventions then? No, I was doing more like you can search by people. Uh-huh. There's an index, so you can search online. So you can search by people. I looked for different people. I looked for San Francisco. The piece I did in the iteration last night is sort of focused on him in San Francisco in some ways. And I think what I'm going to do, every place I do it, I'll change things to fit that place. Oh, that'd be amazing. So I focused a lot on San Francisco, and that was a way to narrow it down. And then mm-hmm. I talked to people like... Some of the people who worked at the archive, I asked them, like, what are your favorite things? And that's how I learned his glasses were there and his passport and his address book. There's, like, objects, too. It's not just mm-hmm. papers. So, 
you know, I got his glasses and looked at them, and that was cool and stuff like that. All right. That's like what you have in the end of Clear Glasses. You've yeah. got what, Mao's book. Bruce Connor's Bruce shoes. Bruce shoes. Yeah. And a Bigfoot cast. Yeah, exactly. What was it? Was it just, was it Joe and his wife that gave you Bruce's shoes? Or was it? It was Bruce himself. Oh, he did. What? Why yeah. didn't he need his shoes? I mean, we we got to know him at the end of his life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my friend Rebecca Solna is friends was friends with him. Oh, cool. And at one point, um, he called Rebecca. I was at Rebecca's house. And mm-hmm. She was like, "Oh, hey, Bruce." You know, and I heard the call from one end, and she was like, "No, chemo or boyfriend." He doesn't have size ten and a half shoes. Why? You know, and I was like, wait a minute. Bruce is giving away some size ten and a half shoes. I was like, Rebecca, I'm size ten and a half. And she was like, well, my friend Sam, you know, he's a filmmaker. He's... So what Bruce wanted was help moving something. So I was like, okay, I'll come over. And I helped him move some stuff. And right. he gave me two fancy Italian dress shoes, pairs of And he had the... The ad from the newspaper when he got him of the shoes. And it was like from the wow. 80s or something. Yeah. <laughs> He'd never worn them. So. Oh, he never worn them ever? He'd never worn them, yeah. I've never worn them. Oh, no, you can't. No. Do you even have 10 and a half size shoes? Feet? Yeah. Oh, okay. They fit me perfectly. It's like Cinderella. <laughs> that was also the day where. Cinderella. After we, um, after we moved the stuff, mm-hmm. we sat in the kitchen and he said. This was a couple years ago, so it was before everybody knew this. He said, Sam, have you ever had a Mexican Coke? <laughs> and I thought maybe this was some like dirty 70s Coke sex right, thing or right, something right. like that. I was like, I don't know, Bruce. Why? <laughs> <laughs> and he pulled out a Coke from Mexico that you know is made right. with sugar and it tastes way better. Right. And I'd never known that before. I was like, damn, Bruce, you're right. It's really good, a Mexican Coke. The one time me and you went to lunch with him, because I tried to buy him lunch and he refused, bought us lunch, and then he's like, well, do you want to see a new cut of Report? And we were like, what would any nerd film guy, yeah, hell yeah, fuck, okay, we'll go in my my kitchen, we'll show it to you, because you're like, fuck yeah. And of course, like, God knows what's different, because it's just, it's totally amazing and a thousand edits, and yeah, well, the gun, there's a little bit more of the gun. In the front and this and stuff. Like, I don't know, man. It's beautiful. It was beautiful before. It's beautiful now. But then at the end of that, we're le- hung out with him very super nice to us. And we leave in and he's like, oh, I've got some shirts because I gave money to the local sports kids. And so it was like Glen Park. I got basketball and you got baseball. Yeah. 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 And it's just actually a really cool thing. And you asked him, you're like, Bruce, could you sign this for me? And he's like, no. I didn't, I didn't design it. Yeah, I didn't make that. It's even better. That was awesome. And remember, we went from Bruce's house to Craig Baldwin's house. Yeah, that was like a long <laughs> seven-hour jaunt between two generations of intense people. Yeah, that definitely. Was, that was yeah. And was both fun. of them was great. Both of them were like, "Oh yeah, Craig," or like, <laughs> yeah, "Yeah, Bruce." Yeah, Bruce. <laughs> yeah that's pretty Ed. On that subject, how do you feel? Have you ever thought about like being now that you're doing a different type of documentary, which works and is interesting? Yeah. And whether or not you do more or not, but the Fuller thing is was really effective. Like, how, how do you feel? Like you were in a sort of um, 
not you know the opposite of a vacuum. You feel like yeah. in a way the documentary. You're never going to say, oh, people should more people should do live documentaries, but you do believe a lot in a live event and how documentary can sort of move forward with yeah. it. Yeah. Do you think like? Do you have advice? Do you think other people should do it? Do or is it just like a natural progression of well, stuff? Well, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's two things. One, I'm, I want to say this in like a sort of tactful way. I'm a little bit bored. Not bored with movies, but there's so many movies now. Mm. I, this sounds terrible to say, but there are too many movies. There are too many people making films. Mm. Uh... And I just find myself, there are great movies out there, and I have good movie-going experiences, but the form just feels a little, it's not the same when there's so many of something out there, and it's so easy to watch. Mm -hmm. The experience is a little different. And so I always just sort of do things that I would want to see, and... The live things, the difference between what we did last night, we, the, the show last night, the Buckminster Fuller show was all the elements of a movie. I talked, I showed things, and a band played. You could easily take that and make a movie out of it, and somebody could watch it, and it would be a totally different experience. It would be okay, you know, but the fact that everybody came there, it was totally sold out was special, you were seeing Yola Tango on stage, all of that made it a totally different kind of event and a way more, I think, way more meaningful and exciting and fun event. And I just kind of feel like my time and probably everybody else's time is important and valuable and if you're going to expect people to be into something you do, you got you got to really deliver these days, you know, you got to step it up. So... Part of doing live stuff is just a way to... It's just the way my interest is going. It's not to say I'm done making normal movies. I like normal movies. I made this Esperanto movie. I'll continue to do that. But I like to... I, I'm enjoying investigating these new areas. But on top of that, it is actually smarter in a business sense. And Brent Green, my cousin Brent Green, does live cinema. And we sort of mm -hmm. give each other tips. And he's super smart about this and knows that... If I was making an experimental documentary about Utopia and trying to get it out in the world, I'd make no money and have very few screenings. Doing a live event, you can make money. You can do well and you can do, go all over the place if you're smart about pushing it out there because it's in the performance world. In the performance world, they still pay. They still understand that people have to make a living. The bottom hasn't dropped out of the performance world yet the way it has with the film world. Film world's like, yeah, we'll give you a $100 screening fee. You know, the performance right. world, your screening fee is several thousand dollars. So it's actually a smart move. And Sarah Jacobson, my friend, the filmmaker, said to me, she was a smart lady, and she said, film is always a couple years behind music in terms of how it evolves. And it's true. Music, you know, it's been years since you could make a lot of money selling your music, unless you're a huge act. You got a tour. And film is headed in that direction. I mean, the bottom is, you know, things are going down and down and down in terms of like selling films. But going around doing live events, it's still a way to, to you know, you can't download that still. So 
there's a a value to that. So I'm interested in it that way, just in terms of like I'm hustling like everybody else, and this, you know, has been a good good direction for me in that sense. And with you know, you've only done the two, but but yeah. what kind of what do you hope people take away from Fuller? Just because, uh, like, you don't say this is his life and that's impossible and how big the archive is. Like, a two-hour movie, it's weird. Like, like if you want to do something completely extensive, yeah. you know, Shoah this is incredibly <laughs> extensive yeah. and long, and that thing has to be long and it right. has to be able to hit you that way. But... Doing it live, it, it's going to hit people hard, but you're not giving them. You're giving them what? Uh, one millionth of the information yeah. possible. So when you're going into that, and just to keep yourself psyched up to not get overwhelmed, yeah. you're like, is there something like, okay, when people are going to walk out, I want them to at least feel or think a certain way about Fuller? Or are you feeling – how do you keep it from just being boring and informational? Well, it's more just an essay in some sense about the things I am interested – I like and – items I came across that make me laugh and you know it's just sort of that and it's a combination of funny stuff and some serious and yeah. hopefully people are charmed by the experience enough that they're open to stuff but I'm not hitting anybody over the head I mean I do think there's some interesting and valuable political ideas at the heart of it but mostly I just want people to enjoy themselves and when you're going through the uh, archive, were you? Did you? Uh, was it a little bit like reading a novel? Like the car I knew about, but I didn't know. Well, that there's that Diego Rivera. Photo, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is amazing, <laughs> and it's that sort of thing. You know, you find out about somebody, and you're like, oh my god, how is this guy that famous? And I have barely heard of him, and he was the, just the dome guy, something tiny. Right, right. I love that. You yeah. know, like he was at Black Mountain College. With all these amazing people who's lifelong friends with John Cage and Merce Cunningham, you know? <laughs> totally crazy. weird. At the end of his life, he was super pals with John Denver. <laughs> he was cool. He was definitely, like, a fascinating figure. Right. One of the things I like most about him is he was a great namer of things, which, as somebody who's a terrible namer of things, <laughs> I really respect that. But, like, he came up with the greatest phrases spaceship earth he wrote this book operating manual for spaceship earth in 1962 you know so it wasn't even like a 70s thing this was like yeah i thought that was just like a b-movie title no wow no and then um and then the car how did he find the name for the car oh dimaxian that was like his (laughs) term and an advertising guy at some point said like you got to combine some words how about dynamic maximum intention (laughs) <laughs> Dimaxian I like it So everything was like the Dimaxian house right. His archive is the Dimaxian chronophile Rather than just like my papers You know So like it has this grandeur to it right. so. And that just like There's so much weight with yeah, yeah For sure Was there stuff you love That you couldn't, just couldn't get in? Oh yeah Tons yeah. But I'm gonna I mean the thing That's also cool about doing live stuff Is you can change it So like I already have all these ideas To to like expand it in certain ways right there was some part this is sort of goofy but i Uh you know he talks like this boston sort of weird boston accent and i was like who does this who does he sound like he reminds me of somebody a lot then one day it hit me edie from gray gardens like they talk a lot alike (laughs) so i wanted to do a like a little 
gag with that. You know, like, who does he talk like? And then show a clip from Ray Gardner. <laughs> yeah, those are unique individuals. <laughs> do, um, do you, how hard is it then to, like, adapt the live program? I mean, you're using, you're not, are you actually using PowerPoint? Keynote. Keynote. The Apple version of PowerPoint. Yeah, it's no, I mean, yeah. you can do it no problem. That's the yeah. cool thing about it. One other great thing about it is mm-hmm. you don't really have to pay for rights either. When you, like with a photo or a film? You know, I used a bunch of stuff from mm-hmm. Google Images. Whatever. Right. It's a live event. Yeah. It's a lecture. Right. It's a lecture. Because that's gotten, that, that whole educational market has sort of died out too, where people yeah. used to pay a lot for a DVD. Yeah. And that's not going to happen anymore unfortunately it's terrible that was one of the last yeah. sort of good hustles film documentary filmmakers had and right it's that's definitely ending are you, have you gonna are you gonna try or with utopia did you do many universities or even university shows school uh, even just students of yeah, any we age did. we did that was great i mean that's always yeah. like what was good... the response for that that was cool i mean mm-hmm. in some ways utopia is a pretty I want to say adult, but it's definitely like uh, there's a lot of history and ideas. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'd look and young people would just sort of be like gla- eyes glazed over. You never know, though. I mean, we yeah. did that show at Wheaton about a month or two ago. And mm-hmm. students seemed totally into it there. So it's a little hard to tell. Mm-hmm. But I sort of wanted to put in like one of the utopia stories would be about Kanye West or something, you know, just to keep them awake. <laughs> but you do a good job of like. I mean, I would assume, especially because it's a film school, they're going to be staring at technique. Yeah. I think I just remembered at the end of the other mm-hmm. interview we did, Cinemat, I was talking about Utopia, and didn't I say I wanted to get Old Dirty Bastard to narrate it? You did say that. Yeah. yeah and that was right before he died. I remember Matt McCormick <laughs> called me and was like, dude, your narrator's dead. And I was like, What? That would have been something special, too. See, that's what, that was where... Well, what that was was right after I'd realized the piece didn't make any sense and I needed narration. Right. And I was so desperate, I was thinking, old, dirty <laughs> bastard. That's that's how much I didn't want to narrate it myself. <laughs> well, I think we were talking about you selling out, too. Which, you can't old, really dirty bastard would have been great, though. Can you Amazing. imagine that? Oh, yeah. I'm sure a lot of these guys would probably work for you, too. <laughs> but what... Uh, how much of the battle? You did a good job both times, and I think especially last night with a hugely famous band. It's you do forget about them in a good way, hmm. and you're up there talking, but you, you don't have this huge spotlight on yourself, and you you really feel like like oh yeah, you're talking to people, yeah, and it's not it's not like a lecture. It's more like it's probably just your honest vibe where you're like, holy shit, can you believe this? Uh huh. Here, let me show you this. You know. Yeah. So, are you constantly? How? How? What's the balance? Like when you, when you just so make sure that you don't give too much, that you don't overwhelm what the story is with the performance. Uh yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, like, well, that goes back to that thing of like mm-hmm. wanting people really to pay attention to what's on the screen mm-hmm. more than you. And so, even like the lighting, you got to adjust the lighting so it's low enough that people's eye really is mostly on the stage. I'm not really doing anything up there. In some ways, there's nothing to look at, and it's just a voice. Mm-hmm. It's a voice that you can see where it's coming from. There's a kind of 
live presence to it, but I don't want people like watching me the whole time. So mm-hmm. keeping, you know, just sort of like trying to be backseat to the image is important. But it also seemed like you had a good timing worked <clears throat> out <clears throat> where, and you, you, this, the, the new trick was you put that expert up and he's shaking his head like he oh, can yeah. hear you talking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so is that all just experimentation? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I was it was funny because at one point with this piece, I was like, uh-huh. I have some interviews with people, which I didn't really in Utopia. So mm-hmm. it's just like trying something new. And I was like, why don't I, these people live in the Bay Area. Why don't I interview them live on stage? Or like right. have a camera and shoot them backstage like Miranda July or something. Then I was like, wait a minute, because then they'll just go on and on. Like, the beauty of filmmaking is that you edit people, you know, and make them just say the right thing. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to use their video. and Right. But then do some tricks with it. So you can pause it or, you know. <laughs> with, um, um, with this being commissioned, is yeah. there other stuff that you're working on? I saw, like, the, the, some of the fog. Yeah. The experimental fog documentary. Yeah, that's my life work, you know. <laughs> Every year we're about to finish and like you can't. I don't I'm still missing some shots. So mm-hmm. I've been working on this documentary about fog in San Francisco, which is a great subject here and mm-hmm. I'm gonna start editing that for real in the in the summer fall and I gotta finish that one. So But it's unclear. I put together a rough cut of it and mm-hmm. it was really weird because I still don't know what kind of film it is. Like, there were sections that were voiceover, like a personal film even, and then there's sections that are like totally normal documentary, and it's just a hodgepodge, and I have to like figure out, okay, what kind of movie is this really going to be? Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, yeah, what's the story? Yeah, no, it's like experimental fo- about fog. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but... Uh, but Again. is it also like so? I mean, the, you've got a connection with San Francisco. It's not yeah, just I coming mean, in, in so, here. In some ways, like just like a regular documentary about fog, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting, but also kind of just like okay, it's about fog. But fog actually is a hugely complex and rich subject that encapsulates tons of ideas and poetry and. The material itself can't always evoke all that. So that's why I like voiceover now. Some, you know, you can put an essay on top of it and it can be a much more sophisticated movie. Did you learn more about fog by shooting it then? Oh man, I know so much about fog <laughs> and weather and Bay Area weather, but just enough yeah. to know that nobody really can understand it. Oh, I yeah. have these meteorologists that I'll call and I'll be like, is it going to be foggy tomorrow? And they'll be like, maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's super cool because it definitely shows the limits of human capability. Mm-hmm. You cannot make a computer model that will simulate fog. Wow. You can't, you know, sometimes like it's not that hard. You're like, okay, it was hot yesterday. It's going to be foggy. But the odds of predicting it right are, you know, like 60 or 70%. Hmm. Do you feel, are there things um, you miss about San Fran? Is it, since you've made oh. so much here and you've been yeah. away between touring and, and living in, on both York. coasts, yeah. and especially being a documentarian, being someone who makes films about real life yeah. and real places, 
do you feel is it, was there a certain connection to San Fran that helped drive you, help you find stories, help you keep making yeah, stuff? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm. It's a little weird for me because I I started making films here and was hugely inspired by the film scene here, mm-hmm. the documentary community and experimental film community. When I first, you know, when I first started making films, but seriously, there was this thing, Film Arts Foundation, and I would go to the annual members meeting, and it was this big th- event, and I'd see like, man, there's John Else, and there's Lourdes Portillo, and there's Craig Baldwin, and Bill Daniel, and Rob Epstein, and all these people, like well-known filmmakers. I was like, I am, I, I would literally say to myself, I'm so proud to be part of this scene. Uh, and, you know, after so many years, Film Arts Foundation closed, and the world has changed. San Francisco's changed a lot, and I've gotten older, so I'm not necessarily on the scene, and I don't know if that really exists to the same extent. I think there are younger people making films, but I'm no longer, you know, somebody who's super in touch with the film scene here, if there is one. So it's a little weird. I mean... I would like, if I was here, I'd try to be more involved, but I'm not really here that much. So I hope there's a film scene here that's happening without me because, you know, it was a valuable, rich thing that hopefully continues and there's fresh energy and fresh enthusiasm that's invigorating it. I hope so. Did you see, did you run into documentary scenes while you were on tour? Yeah, Winnipeg. Oh, really? Winnipeg has an amazing film scene. That was great. Me and Dave Surf went there and did Utopia and met Guy Madden and all these Matthew Rank and all these people there. It was great. Wow. That was cool. And that's a relatively smaller city, right? Oh man, yeah. <laughs> there was a guy there, this great story had been they told, you know, everybody had these like legendary stories. This guy had been making a movie about a single night, like that movie was it Night Shift or something? <laughs> but he'd been working on it for like seventeen years. Wow. And over the course of the seventeen years, like one of his actors had died. The others had like completely aged, and I just thought, "This is a fucking. This movie will be so good." Right. <laughs> and finally, finishes it. And you think, how much do you need to be like? Now that you're older, is it? Can you just be a vagabond as much, or uh, you got to really focus, like hunker down? It's, and I mean, it's something that takes. Like, I mean, documentaries have so much editing time. Yeah, I mean, I always so have much to, footage. I have to. I'm old and cranky enough that I need like a space to work in so Mm -hmm. as long as I have like a part of my apartment that I can work and have like my stuff I'm pretty good with that I can't just sort of like drift all over the place and work so and so we should end it talking about uh, Fuller's daughter was there last night yeah Buckminster Fuller's daughter did she say anything to you? Yeah, she's like 80 years old and yeah. Allegra. She got up and was like, I loved it. And we hugged. And so, you know, I was happy to hear that. She's definitely an important person in terms of this project. So we'll see. I haven't heard from her today. <laughs> Do you think she's big on Twitter? I don't know. <laughs> or, or email. What, um, she emails, definitely. I've emailed email. with her. Yeah, That's cool. Had you had a lot of correspondence with her leading up? A little bit. Yeah. She's definitely, they're, her and her son are both active in, you know, his legacy. So, mm-hmm. they're involved. And then Fuller, the live documentary, you're hoping to tour. Yeah, it's we're going to do tour. shows. We're yeah. definitely going to tour. So it'll go around. 
Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for doing this, Mike Plant. And should we out our guest here? Uh, Vanessa Rennick has been watching this entire thing. Sitting at this table quietly. I've got a question. Yeah, yeah, you should <laughs> ask him a question. Um, Andy said last night that he had shot a bunch of more interviews that yeah. didn't make it into the movie. Yeah. Who were those interviews, and do you think any of them will make it into other permeations that you create? We So Andy Black was the cinematographer, and we shot a bunch of interviews for the installation and this. And so we did interviews with Chip Lord and Curtis from Ant Farm and who else? Oh, some other kind of fuller type of guy, some dome people who were like big proponents of domes. And those were really helpful in the installation where there's no voiceover or anything like that. I had to use people to sort of get things across. But with this, there's with the live piece, there's much less of a need for that. So I was kind of just using interviews to make it so I wasn't talking all the time. So I could be much more selective. And those two, the Fred Turner and Xiaoyun Chu, are just very good interviews. They were the best in terms of people being good talkers. So The rest are on the edit room floor. <laughs> but do you think you have enough stuff, like if you go to another city, you'll have oh. something from Fuller? to? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, we're probably going to go to Seattle and Portland, and I'll figure out. He did something there. He lectured any place you go, he talked. Wow. And most places have some domes that were inspired by him. You know, or there's got to be something. So right. I'm sure at the Seattle World's Fair or something, he did something. There's so. a dome in Astoria. Really? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and you know it was, if it's a dome, is it just automatically designed by him? No, but he patented, least, you know, yeah. he patented the dome, and so it's it wasn't necessarily designed by him, but it's sort of like, you know, this is something he he pioneered. Right? I think this was one of his domes. In really? Astoria. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I know some people who have friends who live there. Yeah. All right. So we'll go shoot it. Yeah. The thing I like about this, too, is you can do that thing, like you've done this where... That old, old, old film thing where they'd go to a town, yeah. shoot people, and uh, then show it that night. Week, oh, was it in, within a day? I thought or, it was like know, a, couple a couple of days. days. Yeah. yeah, and people have the thrill of seeing like, oh my God, right. that's Fred up there. So you can do some of that, which is always fun. That's your film from South Dakota, right? Isn't yeah. that what happens in it? Well, that's that's what happened when Rick Prelinger took it back to Britain. South Dakota. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the people were talking to the screen. He said, I never... <laughs> right. And uh, the people were seeing people that had died a long time ago or people that had moved away, and they were like really excited to wow. be seeing this footage that had been shot a zillion years earlier in their town that they still live in. Yeah. I love that, that you, you can just go and like Seattle. I've been here for two days, and here's what I've seen <laughs> <laughs> of you. Awesome. Thanks again for doing this. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you, Vanessa. Bye. Thank you.